Hello, friends. Welcome to the Professional Brewers Podcast, hosted by Grenfell Meadery and me, Ricky the Meadmaker. This show is for brewers of all kinds, anyone looking to get into brewing professionally, folks who want to peek behind the scenes at their favorite brewery, or merely the brew curious. Whether you're an old hand in the industry or just starting your professional brewing journey, we hope this show helps you become a better, more profitable, happier brewer. On this week's show, we talk to Tom Gosnell from Gosnell's Mead in London, England. We talk about what makes the UK market unique, why someone might want to start something in what's now being called the Beyond Beer space, getting a Beyond Beer beverage on draft, why the better for you beverages never took off in England, and so much more. Without further ado, let's get into the show with Tom. Welcome to the show. Thank you for staying up late. You're on the other side of the pond, so your experience as a brewer is a little different uh, from over here. So I'd love to hear about your company, how long you've been in business, how big you are, how you sell, and we'll go deep into the nitty gritty in a minute about the differences between brewing in the States and brewing in the UK. Well, Ricky, thanks for having me. So my, my name's Tom. I'm the founder of Gosnells. My surname is Gosnell. So we didn't massively overthink that one. Um, we set up the business, or I set up the business in 2014. And um, guess prior to that, I'd been doing a lot of homebrew of me. And then before that, homebrew of cider, um, hard cider, um, which is just cider here. Um, and then we... So I started out on my own in 2014. We took some investment from a family office fund in 2017. That sounds really grand, but it's just uh, sort of one dude with some money. Um, and then we've taken on a bit more investment over the years um, from various angels and high net worths. And um, we are now a team of nine based in London. So if you know London, we're in Southeast London, in a place called Peckham, which is where we do all the manufacturing. And then we've got a bar up in Bermondsey, which is uh, the tap room, and that's on the beer mile. So that's pretty close to London Bridge. So that's pretty central. Uh, we set up the bar in September of last year, and that's been going really well. And it's a really good kind of hit in the arm for some sales revenue. I wish I'd done it five years ago. It would have made a huge amount of difference. Well, probably not during the pandemic, either before or after the pandemic. But it's been a really good, good hit, hit in the arm for sales and also getting the brand out a bit more. Um, so we kind of specialize in, well, obviously we make mead, so everything we do is made out of honey, but our specialty is really the session style meads at 4%. So we sell the majority of our volume of what we sell is bar and away a 4% mead on draft served by the pint in pubs in the UK. Um, and that's really where we've been, we've always been focused on that lower ABV stuff. And we've sort of doubled down in, on what we call the on-trade, so pubs, bars, restaurants, since the pandemic to try and really build a following and build a market. That's great. I know that the European drinking scene in general is different from the US. Uh, we had the famous show Cheers, where everyone goes to a bar and knows your name. But it, Britain's been like that. I've been in the UK many times, and that pub culture is a really strong force still, correct? Yes and no. I mean, it's, cha it's changing hugely, right? So I think one of the things that Americans always say to me when they come to London is that 
holy shit, there's a lot of pubs, right? And you can't kind of move for a pub. And I know that sounds a bit trite, but they are about as ubiquitous as you you see Starbucks or, you know, coffee shops in the States. It's a, it's a similar kind of third space for us, I guess. It, it performs a, a similar function. Um, no, but so uh, it's really important for, for British culture. I think it kind of comes in waves and without being too cynical about it, a lot of the pubs in the UK are owned by big pub companies. So you're talking 1,000, 2,000, in some cases, 3,000 pubs in a chain. Um, so really big outlets and they're not franchised well they are franchised in a really peculiar way in the UK so they're called uh, what's called tide pubs so a franchisee or a leasee will own the you will rent the building but they have to buy all the beer from the brewery so essentially the big brewers have got it tied up in terms of their supply chain so the market whilst there are a huge number of pubs the actual serviceable market is a much smaller subset of that because you can't, we don't have the three tier system. So you can just own the distribution and block out all your competitors. So we're really focused on more independent pubs and the smaller pub codes who are more interested in new products and provenance and craft and all those good stuff that we always talk about. That's fascinating because that wasn't my picture of the pub scene. I, you know, read a lot of 1920s and 30s literature, and I presume that predates some of this consolidation. But with that, you making mead, was mead on the scene at all in the last couple hundred years in the UK? What was it like, not just being an independent brewer, but breaking into that space with a, we would call them here, a beyond beer beverage? Oh, that's a lovely term, beyond beer. I think, um, no, it was crackers. I don't know why I went for mead. It was really, really nuts, actually. Um, And it was around the time when I think the Colonel had been going, so Colonel Breweries, one of the big original craft brewers in London, had been going for maybe five or six years. Um, And I, I, I could feel like everyone was setting up a craft brewery in 2013, 2014. And actually, if you look back, all those craft breweries that set up at that time are doing pretty well now. So in hindsight, there was definitely a market for it. For me, I, I looked at it and thought, that's way too crowded. That's way too, ob- way too obvious. Um, mead. Mead is an amazing thing. I love, you know, I love mead. I love honey. I love the idea of taking such a natural product that's a real reflection of the environment and then turning it into alcohol. So... Um, I was pretty set on that. And actually, I think when I first started out, it was, I mean, I was, what, 25, 26, something like that. So I had all that arrogance of youth, you know, never having failed, just having smashed everything. Not, yeah, still got a bit of arrogance. But having had a really good sort of early 20s, I was like, this is going to be a piece of piss, right? Um, yeah, and then uh, basically I got to a point in my career where I was either going to go and do an MBA or I was going to set up a business. And I thought, I'll set up a business because it's probably cheaper to lose 50 grand than to lose 150 grand on an MBA. Um, and I learned much of the same skills and I will have tried something and, and kind of um, got my feet properly wet. And so I guess for fast forward to 2016, 2017, the business is going pretty well. And um, that's where we got some investment in. And I guess we were going from that sort of two, three, sorry, I think we we're four people at that time. We were looking to sort of grow onto the next stage. And that's why we took some more some, some investment. And I guess there have been some teething problems around 
2017, I guess, pandemic was 2019, was it 2020? Can't remember. So, yeah, we had a, a few years of growth after that, um, but a few false starts in where we were going with the brand, where we were going with the distribution, what quite the proposition was. Because as you say, that beyond beer category or mead at, at the time was really nascent and has taken a long, lot longer to build than we probably had, I, I had ever expected. And actually, in terms of the business, that marketing element has been this, the thing that we've had to develop the most out of anything. From my background, is I'm a scientist and um, you know, production, making, logistics, that's all fine. I think tracking that secret sauce around the marketing took, took the longest. And that's actually something I really enjoy now, but kind of was a skill that we had to develop a long time. Can you talk a little bit more about that transition? I think a lot of people who want to go pro as brewers, I used to work with people right at that stage uh, a little over 10 years ago. And what I would say to them is, I don't care how many awards you've won. Tell me what your marketing proposition is. What's going to set you apart? And you and I, both being mead makers, what sets us apart is so obvious that we have to do this work to, I guess, convince people that we're in why they would want us on draft what's that space like for you over there so i think our our propositions have evolved so i think we we were in these sort of old brown traditional brown bottles and we were selling a decent amount of those what we call small pack format um and for some reason i was looking for some white space i was looking for where we could be a challenger to an existing category um and that was and the answer to that was for me it was like looking at a lower alcohol version of a wine that's where we were kind of pushing it at five and a half percent we did these big beautiful big bottles of five and a half percent mead and we're trying to sort of say you know if you're trying to cut down a bit on booze swap out a prosecco or a champagne for something a little bit lighter very similar taste profile beautifully made etc that was that all sounded great on a spreadsheet and a powerpoint actually just didn't survive contact right so Within six months, it became really obvious that that was a massive miscalculation. The volume just wasn't there. That wasn't why people were drinking that those kind of drinks. And we were very quickly back into small pack format. And at that point, we had to make some pretty quick decisions and we went straight into cans. And that's when we got the, the cans done. And that, that has been the biggest transformation. That branding to move us into the cans has completely revolutionized things. And then in terms of the proposition we're selling now, we are very clear that we are a hard cider challenger. So in terms of the, the flavor, the um, occasion, the use case, all those things, it works like a cider in the UK. Hard cider, we're lucky that cider in the UK is a big category. Yes, and that's something I was going to bring up for our American audience. Cider is this still almost feels new in parts of the US. And I went to a pub where there were three ciders and two beers uh, when I was outside Oxford. So it is a completely different space for you to come in as a non-grain-based beverage over there. Yeah, that's right. I think for us, so if you look at all the data here, cider is, I can't remember quite what it is. It's about a fifth of the size of beer. So it's a pretty chunky category, I would say. If I've made that up. I'll check that. But it's, it's like chunky enough to be, be definitely worthwhile going out after. The, it's dominated by a lot of big companies. There is some craft cider, but it's super, super craft. I.e., this comes from these orchards, comes from these apples. It's made for the terror of the land. Where the space is, it's just being a little bit bigger than that. 
Um, and that's kind of where we're shooting for. The other thing that's lumped in with cider in the UK is what they call fruit cider, which is your record leg, copperberg, classic is copperberg, strawberry and lime. It's made mainly out of sugar, like genuinely is made mainly out of sugar. And that they sell a huge amount to a younger demographic. So in, in the UK, we don't, we have, it's a rambling talk about the market, but hard seltzers just haven't worked here. Uh, that was actually going to be one of my questions. A lot of people coming into the space here see not Anheuser-Busch or even Sam Adams as their competitor. They're seeing hard seltzer as their competitor. Uh, what do you think speaks to that in the UK space? So, I mean, a lot was written around how they tried to launch it in the pandemic and it was a full start and never got going. My hypothesis is that they taste of nothing and nobody in the UK cares about what they call better drinking. So, I mean, I always remember talking to one of the buyers in the US that we were speaking to about how they're doing a whole campaign around healthier, like drinking healthier beverages and drinking healthier alcohol. Everyone in the UK knows that if you're having a drink, it's bad for you. So, you know, you might have a slim, what we call a slimline tonic, i.e. a diet tonic water with your gin, but that's more of a, um, I'm just, you know, watching my weight a bit. That's pretty rare. Most of the other times you like, you're just cut back on the volume. That's that's the kind of the public health messaging around it here. There's no public health messaging around swapping out a high sugar drink for a low sugar drink. It's just a don't have another drink. And I guess for people here, the hard seltzer, it just what's the what's the point? <laughs> like it's just it's it's a it's not a pleasurable experience, especially if you compare it to say i mean we we've had gin and tonic in a can for i don't know 20 15 years something like that you can get a rum and coke in a can here you can get all those all those kind of beverages already and that's what it's competing against and you think well i might as well just have a real drink that i would order in the pub or somewhere else um and i guess what we're seeing in that category really take off is good quality pre-mixed cocktails Mm -hmm. um that's that's more of a growth market than than the hard sales the hard sales just haven't done anything you look at the data and it's it's really quite embarrassing like how that's, much money that's fascinating that. one of my distributors shared some of their numbers with me and said that in their first year they sold twenty thousand cases of hard seltzer their second year they sold five hundred thousand. their target was one million the next year and they blew past it to two million it yeah. just a completely different market and uh, what we call RTDs, uh, ready to drink cocktails, are growing here, but cocktail culture is very different here. And I think very few people are doing their cocktails at home. They don't do a rum and coke when they come home. They crack a can, they crack a bottle, which is a different space entirely. Yeah, I think that the RTD market, so it's not, when I say better cocktails, I mean, they are they are they are higher quality cocktails. But I'm they're never going to replicate, you know, going for a forty buck martini or something like that. You know, it's not yeah. it's not that kind of occasion. But most of the RTDs are drunk by people who are seventeen to twenty two. That kind of market. It's that pre game market. You know, you go out. So in the UK, you obviously drink before you go out because why wouldn't you? But it's it's also to. Um, to kind of preload because it's quite expensive to drink out out here so you'd preload and you would generally drink spirits and mixers 
you know, if you're going to share something with, with some friends. And so it's replicating that kind of experience rather than a, a super elevated cocktail. I mean, there, there are some in the market uh, kind of, I think Moth is the, the leader and they are 200 mil cans. So really nice, cool, small cans. They are 17, 18% cocktails. So it's a nice, it's a real cocktail, but they're on a nearly five pounds a can in a supermarket. So when a beer is, I can get a beer for like two, two pounds, something like that. So, you know, they're definitely at a price premium there. So one of the other things you mentioned earlier was about the volume you're doing on draft. What is your draft to package ratio right now? Uh, I'd probably say it's probably about 80, 85% draft, something like that. So we looked at our business in the cold hard late, late day last year and realized that we make a lot more money on draft. Like the margins are just much better. The rate of sales better. The customer, you know, our customers make better margins as well. So that's where we were concentrating. Um, we're up to about a hundred draft outlets at the moment with more coming around over the summer. So this is, this is a really big summer for us. We're doing a massive push around world B day on the 20th. Um, so sort of activating in all of our accounts and um, we should do, I mean, to give you an idea of volumes, what we're doing, we should do north of 1200 kegs this quarter, which for us is, is, is like a, a pretty decent volume, um, 30 liter kegs. So it's thoughts that about 50,000 liters, something like that. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Uh, the last really big question I have for you is, uh, you and I both came into our professions with those uh, mid-20s uh, blinders on, uh, bravado and all of that. What resources do you wish you had looked to? What resources have you found since then that you would love to point a new brewer towards? A new brewer? So I think I, 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 I've always dreamed of getting someone else to make it, Ricky. That has been my dream. Getting, don't tell Will this, but not getting rid of the brewery, but like find, you know, that's, and that's what we we started out with was trying to find somebody else to, to make the product for us who we could trust. And actually turns out at the time, no one was, was making mead and no one would ever talk about it. And secondly, getting that quality is difficult from somebody else. Um, not impossible, but it is difficult. So I think that you have to have, in terms of the resources you're looking for, it's a difficult question. I'm so green and so naive. Like if I look back at some of the things I, even just some of the opinions I held, I was just like, what, what are you doing? Um, what would I, what would I just try? That's a really th tricky one um, because I was so arrogant. I don't think you could, could have told me anything. I was just so like, no, this is the way. I'll tell you a great quote to buy you a second to think of it that yeah. Kelly was at a conference of women business owners and this incredibly outrageously successful woman who owns this massive uh, environmentally sustainable, socially focused uh, business center here in Vermont. She started her career by going into town, making phone calls on a phone she could get at a restaurant while building her own house with a baby on her back, like literally not figuratively. And it's like the Vermont story, right? Yeah. But someone said like, if you knew then what you know now, and this is a hard scrabble, crazy proposition to begin with. She just goes, oh, I would have never started. If I had known, if I had known then what I would have to go through, what my family would have to, I would never have started. Are you kidding me? 
It's the greatest gift being dumb and naive. So that said, uh, what resources have you found in this time? So, so, so I, I, I think that um, finding a decent bunch of peers who you, and like networking's awful, right? Like, you know, when you're networking just to, just to network, that's like the worst way to approach it. If you're trying to make some friends, uh, that's normally a pretty good way of doing it because friends are honest with you. Um, and there's people when things are going really wrong that you can ring up and say, oh, are you, have you ever had this problem? Or, okay, can I just chat through some, just some shitty times? And then you get a, you get a more accurate picture of the world. The problem with, the reason I didn't go to networking events for absolutely years is the only people that I seemed to interact with were people who were like, hi, yeah, I'm smashing it. Like, I'm absolutely, I'm the best in the world. And you're like, oh, well, that's weird because I'm, I'm pretty honest. So I'm not. Like, I don't feel like I'm, in, you know, I, I feel like I'm struggling a bit. Um, and so I think that, that the resources I'd look for would just be to find an honest group of people you can hang out with and just chew the shit with and be like, oh, it's really hard, isn't it? Like, yeah, it is really hard. And that's the reality of it. Otherwise, everyone would have done it. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. And it takes an awful lot of courage. I don't think that, I certainly don't, see myself as a risk taker although anyone you talk to would say that i've got an incredibly high tolerance for risk i don't feel that because i'm constantly worried about it like it's not like i'm and i think that maybe is the truth right if you're a relatively intelligent person who is taking risks you are you understand what the risks are and you still take them that is going to freak you out a bit and stress you out it's not a uh you don't have to be a swashbuckling hero who doesn't care. You can just uh, sit with the angst, I guess. <laughs> Tom, I could not have left it on a better note. Thank you so much uh, for any of our listeners on your side of the pond. You're only available in England, all of the UK. Where are you available now? Uh, we're mainly based in London, the Southeast, actually, on draft. But you can get our cans across the UK. Great. Uh, So I will drop a link to your site in the show notes. Thank you so much for staying up to talk to me. And very much, Ricky. It was a pleasure. Diddle pet. My guest today was Tom from Gosnell's Mead in London, England. Links to Gosnell's Mead are included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to professionalbrewers.com for more amazing content to help you on your professional brewing journey. And for exclusive content, as well as the opportunity to ask questions of upcoming guests, please consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash professional brewers podcast. Your support makes this show possible. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.